welcome to OnSpec, the podcast where you'll hear little stories from across our big world. I'm your host, Nadine Gorey. In the American city of Yuma, Arizona, right on the border with Mexico, there's a lettuce farm, one of many in this vast agricultural region, not far from the Colorado River. This guy takes care of the pigs. Miguel Valle works in a noisy warehouse here. He's a manager overseeing other workers out into the fields each day. Miguel was born in San Luis, Rio, Colorado. It's a sprawling city just across the border in Mexico. It's named after the Colorado River, but water doesn't flow there anymore. Miguel has spent most of his life here on the U.S. side. He's always telling his kids that they really have to pay attention when they're in the shower. They ask them, you know, hurry up and, you know, take a shower, you're wasting water. The Colorado River provides water to some 40 million people across the American West. But people on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border are running out of water, in part because the once mighty Colorado River is drying up. This year, an environmental group declared the river the most endangered waterway in the U.S. It's a reality locals like Miguel do not like thinking about. I feel bad because, you know, some communities probably need it, but... It's, you know, we need it here too. Reporter Elisa Resnick travelled down the Colorado last year to document how locals are grappling with the river drying up. And I have to say, the story Elisa brought back really surprised us. A lot of the people she met are forging a much closer connection with the river, even as it's disappearing. Elisa started her trip on a bumpy road, just off Route 66, that descends into the Grand Canyon. The road down into the canyon passes by all these incredible rock faces. Pale sandstone with streams of dark granite and hills dotted with green shrubs. The roar of the river greets us at the bottom. A place called Diamond Creek. There's a bunch of rubber boats tied up at a sandy cove along the shore. Lots of boating trips start or end here. Oh my god, that's Walker. Your brother? Yeah, he's a... Actually, by chance, my little brother Walker is finishing up one of those trips when I get there. He's got on this Hawaiian shirt, and he's rolling up thick rubber boat tubes. Sometimes it feels like this river is almost like a small town, kind of place where you bump into your neighbors at the grocery store. It's a very small world. I had a feeling I might see him here. I'm going to go say hi. Did you know I was going to be here? My brother Walker is a river guide, just like my dad. I worked a river trip myself once, but today I'm embarking on a very different journey, traveling about 350 miles from the Grand Canyon to the Mexican border along the Colorado River. A lot of it I did by car, but some on the river too. I wanted to use this trip to figure out how people think about this river, especially this moment where parts of it are vanishing right in front of us. Down on that sandy cove in Diamond Creek, I meet up with Patricia Imus Sespooch. Imus is my maiden name, my grandfather's name. Um, I'm half Wallapai and half Hispanic. Patricia is striking. She has these gray-blue eyes and thick black hair that spills out from underneath a baseball cap. Her tribe, the Wallapai, is one of 11 tribes that have ancestral ties to the Grand Canyon and this river. I'm 57 years old and I've been here practically almost all my life. I love it here. I don't think I'd choose to live anyplace else. Patricia owns her own rafting company, 
taking people on trips along the 50-mile stretch of river between here and a place called Pierce Ferry. That's where the Grand Canyon ends. It's kind of a dream come true for her, but it wasn't an easy road to get here. When she was 23, Patricia applied to work with the Wallapai Tribes River Running Company. And I was immediately told, no, you can't. We don't think you can do it. Native American women guides are rare on the Colorado River, even today. It was a barrier even fewer had crossed back then. I uh, was a cosmetologist prior to that. So, of course, I had the big 80s hair and the big long nails. And I said, I will tear all this stuff down. I'll take my nails off. Just give me a chance. Patricia has worked out here as a guide most of her life. But she battled with the tribe for years before they finally let her start her own boating company. It's October when we meet her on the river's bank. We're one of her last trips of the season. Come on in, guys. Just off the sandy bank, the river looks like chocolate milk with white foam on top. We want you two in that seat right here in front. No, the two, you two. No, no, Cindy, you're okay. There are seven of us, including me, my producer Cassandra, and a few of Patricia's friends and relatives. We pile in and push off the banks. And we're off. When I worked on this river, my job wasn't so glamorous. The industry term for the gig is a swamper, someone to handle the passengers, help cook, and give a hand to guides like Patricia, who drive the boats. But really, I spent most days sort of sloppily tying off boats when we docked for camp and chopping up coleslaw. Still, those experiences were how I fell in love with this river. Patricia's been in love with the river, really, since she was a kid. Every Easter, she and her grandma would come down to Diamond Creek to meet her grandfather. He was on commercial trips that started more than 200 miles upstream from a place called Lee's Ferry. And he would flow in on that big, you know, uh, J-rig and hooping and hollering with a bunch of people that we don't know. (laughs) Jumping off into the river and swimming to the beach. And uh, that's when I said, I want to do that. Once she was working as a guide, Patricia's grandma sat her down and asked what she felt in the middle of all that rushing whitewater. I said, I feel good, like I'm happy and excited. You know, she says, not scared. I said, no. And she said, okay, then. There's some places that are built for people, and that place is built for you. Normally, Patricia takes passengers downstream on a trip that takes all day. But this morning, she only has a few hours. So we're headed a few miles upstream instead. Just past a big rapid up ahead, there are these wallopi petroglyphs that Patricia wants to show us. Yeah, we're going to come up here and make a, a nice little stop about maybe uh, less than two miles up the river here. Rapids are formed when swift-moving water rushes over boulders and rocks. This one looks almost like steps in a staircase. Canyon walls stretch around us like skyscrapers. It takes a lot of power to get one of these rubber boats upstream past a rapid. That's why Patricia's attached two big plastic motors to the back of our boat. Hang on. The smell of gasoline rises into the air as Patricia fights against the current that's trying to take our boat back downstream. Soon, the boat's rubber nose spins sideways, and we can see Diamond Creek again, back where we started. Go ahead and gun it. The lower the water level, the more intense rapids can become. A rubber boat can flip over in the middle of one of those rapids if a guide approaches it wrong. Let's do it. But Patricia is in her element. She's gripping these long rods in each hand, called tillers, that steer the motors. 
Her eyes are fixed on the water ahead. She's like an orchestra conductor, lifting and twisting each tiller, trying to make this massive rubber tube climb upstream. Okay, one more time. In the end, even our two motors aren't enough to get us there. One more time, the last time. Patricia gives it six goes, but each time the rapid spits us out back towards Diamond Creek. She finally docks us for lunch less than a mile upstream. Sometimes it's not meant to be. Maybe we're not meant to see the petroglyphs. It's a feat not many would attempt in conditions like this, with the water so low. The water level here in the Grand Canyon is determined by the amount released by a big dam further north called the Glen Canyon Dam. Snowmelt from the Rocky Mountains feeds the Colorado River. This river waters thirsty cities, grows our food, but now it's disappearing because of climate change, drought, and plain overuse. The states that rely on the river knew this day might come. They came together years ago to negotiate what would happen if the water level dipped down to a certain predetermined low point. That's no longer in question. This year, mandatory cuts took effect in certain places. And if the river continues to decline, more will come. It means communities along this river are facing a future now where everyone will have to make changes. There's parts of the canyon where you can literally walk across. Patricia remembers a time back in the 90s when this wasn't the case. Guides didn't worry as much about getting beached by a hidden sandbar in the water. Now they do. Patricia hopes people make it here to see the river for themselves. But what state the river will be in when they do is an open question. How would you describe the Colorado River to somebody, or this portion of the Colorado River to somebody who's never been here, never seen it, and yeah, might not ever? Your question almost makes me want to, you know, cry because there's no, there's no explanation for it. It just like, it, it like gets my heart, you know, all jumbled up. Like you can feel the wind right now. You can feel it on your face. This rock that I'm sitting on, this one's a little bit softer than this one, you know, or um, the clouds or the color. There's just like, it's never ending. I think everyone must feel some version of that almost inexplicable sense of wonder here at the bottom of the canyon on this river. I felt it myself a couple years ago working on that river trip. I was floating downstream after a long work day cleaning up squished scorpions on the boats and staying on the lookout for this German guy who kept trying to eat all the veggie burgers. And then I had this moment at the end of the day. It wasn't like anything big or special happened. Like Patricia, I don't have a clear explanation. It was finally just so quiet. Me in the water. It might be the closest to pure joy that I've ever felt. My dad, who's been a river guide his whole life, says everyone who's been on the Colorado has a river trip that sticks with them. Your magic trip. Because that's the trip that you remember about every aspect of it your whole life, and the rest of them blur together. My dad, Pete, introduced me to this river. He's been guiding for 40 years. Rewind a little bit. Recently, we sat down and listened to this interview my dad did for a radio show in the 70s. We got a real interesting canyon coming up on the right. You can see it up there. It's where Major Powell was in 19, 1869. 
Major Powell, a.k.a. John Wesley Powell, is a giant in Grand Canyon, Colorado River lore. He was a geologist and one of the first Europeans to explore and write about this region. How many people did he have on his expeditions with him? On his first trip downriver, some of Powell's men jumped ship and hiked out midway. They were worried about the rapids. Those guys died out there. Today, there's a plaque in the canyon that describes what happened. It says, uh, here, three men from Powell's original trip hiked out, and they were later killed by Indians. It says they were killed by Indians? That's what it says. And, uh, oh, my God. But that story it? has been debunked. It, it, apparently, the, the three guys actually made it out of the canyon to a Mormon splinter group compound where they were killed. <laughs> They weren't killed by Indians, they were killed by Mormons. And yet, there's a plaque that says otherwise. In fact, the official story is still under debate. That's the thing about the Colorado River. It's a waterway that touches so many places and people. But how we understand it is often shaped by the stories of just a few. Honestly, it's usually mostly dead white people, like John Wesley Powell. But so much is missing from that narrative. Hi. Hi. Um, Bennett, yes? Yeah, Bennett. Alisa, nice Bennett. to meet you. Cassandra. Are you recording now? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> On my journey down the Colorado, just south of the Grand Canyon, I stop in a town called Kingman to meet up with a guy named Bennett Wakayuta. We have some apples for you. These little honey crisps. Kingman's about three hours from the Grand Canyon's south rim. That's this iconic lookout point over the canyon that millions of people visit every year. You can stare out into what looks like a layer cake of pink peach and black rock. From there, the river is just this tiny black ribbon down below, sneaking its way across the bottom of the canyon, a mile into the earth. People used to live there. A lot of people just don't know, just don't know exactly that South Rim was a village. Bennett is a shorter guy with black hair tied into a braid. He's Wallapai and Hopi. Both tribes have ancestral ties to this river. All around us inside Bennett's home, there are kachina dolls that he made, an ode to his Hopi heritage. They're these delicate figurines carved out of cottonwood and adorned with feathers and painted faces. Bennett spent some of his childhood in Peach Springs, the capital of the Wallapai tribe's present-day reservation. As a kid, he bounced back and forth between the Hopi and Wallapai reservations. When he was eight, he got shipped off to California to live with a family as part of a program for Native children run by the Mormon church. You know what all the churches did, they took kids and, you know, they said, we're going to teach them how to have a better education. I was taken, you know, and... This was a different program than the boarding schools for Native Americans that are in the news now for rampant abuse and death. Though this program has had abuse allegations, too. Bennett had a good relationship with his host family and still keeps in touch with some of them today. But still, he says getting sent away felt like getting abandoned. The good was education. The bad was losing identity. And uh, that really did a number to me. You know, and it sets the table for alcoholism. And I became a big alcoholic. It was a long journey back. And it's one that began with the river. He came back to the reservation when he was in his early 20s. And like a lot of Wallapai, he started guiding boating trips with the tribe's river running company. But then it was still kind of not on solid ground. He still had problems with anger and addiction. He's 49 now, and he says it was several years ago when that changed. 
That's when the tribe approached him to take part in a different kind of river trip, this time as a cultural guide, explaining Wallapai's place in the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River to passengers. And uh, they told us, hey, you guys get a couple pairs of shorts. You guys are going on the river. All right, no problem. Total life change. He says that first time back felt totally different, almost like a rebirth. Or, in my dad's words, his magic trip. There was just a spirit down there that just took a hold of me. A few years ago, Grand Canyon National Park commemorated 100 years as a national park. But Bennett says not everyone was celebrating. A hundred years of not being able to go home. That's what we're celebrating, you know. But the, in the park size, that's a hundred years of, oh, we've been a national park. But, you know, but at what expense? At the expense of removing a people that were already there. But that's beginning to change. Recently, Bennett and other tribal members have been working with the park. They're renaming sites in the canyon to honor tribes and creating programming river and hiking guides can use to educate passengers about the canyon's indigenous past and present. They want to make people understand that long before people like Powell arrived, they were here. They still are. Now it's more of we're coming home and welcome to our home. You're welcome to come into our home, you know. For Bennett, it seems like all this is not only about finding his connection to the river's magic, but helping others find it too. Everything's so beautiful. Everything just opens you up and it's magical. And the magic part connects with them more when uh, they have a representative that could explain so much things along the way. That sense of magic means very different things to different people. And that's partially because the Colorado River changes shape so much on its long journey to Mexico. The river has already traveled through five U.S. states by the time it reaches the Grand Canyon. On the rest of its journey south through Arizona, the river passes through many borders. Several dams harness its flows. Water pools into reservoirs or gets diverted elsewhere. When it arrives at the Mexican border, the Colorado is nothing like the ferocious river we encounter in the Grand Canyon. There's, there's your Colorado River right there. See it? Yeah. Steve Alameda is a farm owner in Yuma, Arizona, about a four and a half hour drive south of the Grand Canyon. We follow the river down here to this arid desert city just north of the Mexican state of Sonora. It's one of the most important agricultural hubs in the United States. During the winter, 90% of the country's lettuce is grown here. It's all fed with water from the Colorado River. A web of cement canals and dams carries it from farm to farm. Let's see, where am I going here? Steve's big pickup truck is climbing up a steep dirt path. He's trying to get us to a vantage point where we can see the sheer scale of this operation and the mother of this whole system, the All-American Canal. It's one of the largest irrigation canals in the world. The canal is so close to the Mexican border that hundreds of migrants have drowned in it, attempting to reach the U.S. It's actually built on ground high above the river itself. Which allows it to flow all the way to Los Angeles. You know, think about that. I, it's incomprehensible. Yeah, people that are from here, they kind of take it for granted. When I came here, I just, I just come up here and say, how in the heck did they, who figured this out? As Steve's staring at the canal system, appreciating all the ingenuity it took to create it, I can tell it's kind of his magic moment. 
He's got this look in his eyes that reminds me of the one Patricia, the Wallapai River guide, had when she talked about the Colorado. I've always thought of this river as this crazy, wild, beautiful place. But for Steve, it feels like the magic is in the borders that reduce and tame the river to something that helps feed people. Steve's a guy who's focused on how to get from point A to Z. I think that's part of why he likes farming so much, even after 35 years doing it. There's a product at the end. There's a a head of lettuce. There's a head of romaine. There's a broccoli. There's something that you can put your arms around when when you finish. These are tangible results, where the outcome relies on the river. And for a long time, the threat against it seemed more existential. But that's the reality now. Arizona took the brunt of mandatory water cuts this year when the first ever shortage was declared along the river in 2021. Farmers like Steve in Yuma have high priority rights to use Colorado River water under a complex system that divides it up among cities, tribes, and farms. So the latest water cuts didn't affect Steve's operation. He isn't really one to talk much about how things make him feel. But trying to imagine a life without this river? I asked him when he brought us back to his warehouse. We have a hard time thinking about that. We don't want to go there. That's end of days kind of talk for your area. And uh, nobody wants to think in those terms. If the changes happening to this river were possible to ignore a few years ago, they're definitely not now. Lake Powell is the second largest reservoir in the U.S. It's fed by the Colorado and sits on the border between Arizona and Utah. This spring, it dipped so low that some worried it would no longer be able to generate electricity. The federal government announced it would hold some water back so it doesn't get any lower. A lot of people see those steps as stopgaps, band-aids on a gunshot wound. We asked a lot of people in this story some version of what a future without the Colorado looks like. And everyone came up with basically the same answer. That, like Steve says, nobody wants to think in those terms. People don't want to imagine a future where the Colorado doesn't exist. They can't. But less than 30 minutes away from Yuma in the Cocopa Indian Tribes Reservation, people don't have to wonder what that future might look like. The river they once knew has already gone. See, I'm gonna go through here first for you guys. Do Justin Brunden is Kokopa and works with the tribe's resource office. Okay. If you can picture in your mind's eye what this would have looked like in 1880, this would have been 300 yards across. It probably would have been about 20 yards deep. There would be ocean-going steam vessels going right past you right now to dock up at Yuma Landing. He drove us around the reservation one afternoon to show us different places along the river. Cocoba have lived along this river since before a border divided the U.S. and Mexico. They were the ones navigating those steamboats. They hunted and farmed here. It's how the Cocoba got their name, the River People. Tribal members still come to this part of the river today. Lots of different stories. Every family has a different story that relates to how the river has uh, affected them um, and how it's changed throughout their family's history. So, The Cocoba still have access to river water for drinking and farming. But before dams diverted most of the flow from here, this part of the river would swell past its banks each year and irrigate the land naturally. Justin says his ancestors harvested wild rice that way. He calls it a central part of the tribe's cultural legacy. Because this river was alive, it crossed the landscape, it moved, it breathed, it writhed through the sand, and that kind of relationship no longer really exists. 
Now the river here is mostly calm and shallow year round. So what are we looking at here, Justin? This is the river that uh, cut the Grand Canyon and at our current location towards the end of the river, it is uh, about knee height, knee depth. So We're standing on the riverbank in Arizona and staring into Mexico. Just a few miles north of here, I've watched asylum seekers from Haiti, Venezuela, and Ecuador splash over the shin-deep water in the Colorado and walk into the United States. At this location with Justin, on the river's banks in Mexico, there's this wide stretch of sandy riverbed dotted with skinny mesquite trees and tall cottonwoods. The same landscape as on this side, but towering green reeds lining the banks make it hard to see much else. The river serves as the border now between the two countries. Water used to flow from here all the way into the Sea of Cortez in Mexico. Um, this river was so large that it had multiple tributaries running through it. It was a, a braided river um, depositing lots of uh, um, sediments. There was a rich forest that teemed with wildlife. There's reports um, as late as the 1800s talking about jaguars being out here. Um, Justin says this is a place his ancestors just wouldn't recognize anymore. And in my view, this is not, this is no longer a river. It's just the world's longest lake. That just has all of these little streams going to cities that are, um, that's where the exit for the water is. It isn't the ocean anymore. It's into cities. One of those cities fed by the river this way is Tucson, more than 200 miles east of Yuma. That's where I live now. I grew up knowing the Colorado River at its mightiest, flowing through the Grand Canyon. Now, I rarely see the river itself anymore, but it's part of my life and millions of others every single day. A 336-mile-long aqueduct system delivers water from the Colorado to our faucets, hoses, and showers. In Justin's words, cities? That's the new oceans that are drinking from the river. Justin sees the version of the river here now, the one separated by walls and shaved away by dams. But he says these borders, they're made by humans, and they're temporary. You know, dams come and go, walls come and go. And uh, so we've been here for time immemorial, and uh, I think we will be for time immemorial, so that gives me hope. I ground my thoughts in, again, a very long time scale, so there's a lot of room for optimism. I have this memory of an experience I had on the river from that same magic trip years ago in the Grand Canyon that I think could be an image of Justin's optimistic future. We were floating on a calm stretch of the river wedged between huge whitewater rapids. The midday sun hit the dark water and made it glisten. I watched a flight of tiny birds form a perfect V above us before dipping down to dunk their feet into the river. For a moment, everything on the river seemed perfect. For a few minutes, everything in life kind of did. I wonder if that's how my dad felt when he first met this river. How did you, how did you get down here? Where did you come from? I was uh, brought up in Los Angeles, right outside of it. My folks went on a river trip in 66. I grew up seeing pictures of him as a young guide. 
He has this big beard and stripes of blonde hair bleached by the sun. He looks so happy. I get why he goes back again and again, long after my grandparents first introduced him to the Colorado. Years ago, we brought them back one last time. On a river trip with my mom, my brother, and me, just the four of us, my dad carried tiny urns with my grandparents' ashes up a steep ravine deep in the canyon. My dad keeps a little envelope with a hand-drawn map of how to get there. And I've been back. I put, in fact, I put my brother Nick's rashes with, with, with those. Really? Uh-huh. I didn't know Uncle Nick was there. Yep. Oh. I think he would have liked to be there. I want to believe that this place will always be here. But honestly, a big part of me thinks it won't be. That one day, all this magic will just dry up. But after going on this trip, talking to people whose lives are actually connected to this river, I'm not so sure anymore. Patricia, the river guide who took me down the Colorado last fall, told me something that I keep thinking about. We were sitting together deep in the canyon, just watching the river. And even if it is just a little trickle of water, at least, you know, we might hike it and we'll know exactly where to go and where everything's at. That's just it. The Colorado is more than just a river. It's the thread that connects us to the stories we tell about ourselves, to our culture, to each of our families and our personal histories. And so, even if the Colorado dries up, it can never really disappear. For On Spec, I'm Elisa Resnick in Arizona. What a moving and powerful story of the spirit of a river, a living, breathing border. Keeping the Colorado was written and reported by Elisa Resnick and produced by Cassandra Lau. Editing is by Levi Bridges, with additional help from Fariba Nawa. Special thanks to Peter Resnick for contributing original music. And to Jack Pongayesva, Amy Kavoski and Jonathan Athens for help coordinating interviews. Our journalism is supported by the IJ for EU Fund. We'd love your support too. Please consider becoming a patron to help us continue showcasing stories from independent journalists from around the world. Visit onspecpodcast.com to sign up. Onspec is going on hiatus. But while we work on our new season, we want to recommend a podcast. The Europeans breaks down the latest news in Europe with pizzazz. We will also be dropping one of their episodes in the coming weeks. Check out The Europeans on all podcast platforms. You're listening to OnSpec, and we look forward to coming back soon. It's been a pleasure to share this season with all of you. Music